0: at orderct.com slash easter24.
1: We spend a lot of time on podcasts like this predicting the future in various ways. But as we do that, we know life is really unpredictable. And as the scripture says, we do not not know uh, the number of our days. And that's why it's a really important thing to have a will to protect yourself and your family. Christianity Today is partnered with Epic Will to walk you through the entire process of creating a will in as little as 10 minutes. You don't have to have a law degree uh, to be able to walk through this, and that's why it's really helpful. So visit morect.com. That's M-O-R-C-T.com. Will. That's morect.com slash will to get started today. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. There are probably not a lot of evangelical preaching classes that would have a Jewish atheist professor's book on the syllabus, but mine always did uh, back when I was in academia because uh, there was a book that I have said to multiple uh, people is, I think, the most important book of the last uh, decade. And it's a book called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and, and Religion by Jonathan Haidt. I think every evangelical Christian should read this book. I think I think every American should, but I think every evangelical Christian particularly should read this book to think about why people see things uh, differently from you, how to talk to people who see things differently from you, and why we often have so many uh, blind spots in terms of uh, of the way that we pay it, what we pay attention to and, what, and, and how we, we filter uh, things. So I'm really honored to have the author of that book, Jonathan Haidt, on signpost today. And I'm also very glad because he and I have been thinking in similar uh, directions this year on a really crucial issue of uh, parenting, of family. We both have have books coming out uh, in the days to come on those issues. Professor Height, thanks for being with me today. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. So you have a new book on parenting and and child rearing.
0: Uh, Yes. Well, the title is The Coddling of the American Mind, Mm. How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And while the focus of it is on the strange goings on on university campuses, what's all this stuff we're hearing uh, just in the last two years about safe spaces, microaggressions, trigger warnings, speeches, violence, protect me from this book. Um, Where did all that stuff come from? And while the story is complicated, several of the causal threads go back to trying too hard to keep kids safe and happy in childhood. And by safe, I don't mean physically safe. I mean emotionally safe, which is a fool's errand.
1: Well, how does that show up? Uh, Give me an example of of what a uh, a typical parent might do in those early years that, that you would see as overprotective.
0: The most important thing of all is that we have uh, basically stopped letting our kids out. We've, uh, sometime in the 90s or early 2000s in most American communities, as far as I can tell, we developed this idea that if a kid is out uh, or if kids are outside and there's no adult who is responsible for them, if they're out playing in a park, let's imagine mm-hmm. a few eight or nine year old kids playing in a park, somebody will think, those kids could be kidnapped, yeah. you know, because there have been kids kidnapped, not many, hardly any, but mm-hmm. it could happen. And so parents, we increasingly read about parents who are arrested for letting their kid play outside. Just uh, last week, there was an eight year old girl was walking the dog around the block. And somebody called the police. Uh, Now the parents, you know, after a couple of weeks, they were cleared of this crime. But kids need to be independent. They need to suffer the consequences of their behavior. They need to get lost and find their way home. Mm -hmm. And when we deprive them of these opportunities until they're 18 and then they go off to college, we shouldn't be surprised that they're not able to function independently in college.
1: Yeah, you know, it's something I notice. I have five uh, sons, and my kids are the only ones in the neighborhood usually who are just out and about (laughs) roaming around, and so many of the others are inside playing video games all day. That's right. Exactly.
0: So there's a couple of problems. There's a couple of problems going on. Um, the main one, as I said, is just that kids need to practice independence. Uh, but then the other one going on is that the, you know. So the kids these days they've been hit by so many different things interacting at the same time. One of them being the arrival of really really good video games in their pockets. Mm-hmm. So for boys, when boys get iPhones, they spend a lot of time playing video games, which means they don't get other kinds of social interaction. But at least you know the video games that my my son plays and that you know, the boys, your son's age play, those actually are at least they're, you know, killing people together. So it's teamwork, (laughs) things like that. For the girls is who it's really devastating for because the girls are doing a lot of social comparison and some relational aggression. And Mm. that's why the depression and anxiety rates and suicide rates for girls have skyrocketed. They're up for boys somewhat, but they have skyrocketed for girls. It's a national disaster what's happening to our teenage girls.
1: Hmm. One of the things I notice is that, at least among a lot of evangelical Christian families, is that even if they're concerned about uh, permissiveness or they're concerned about overprotection, even when they don't know exactly where the line is between those two things, everything goes out the window when it comes to technology. Because it's, it's very difficult to, to, to discern, am I being overprotective and kind of a safe yeah. space trigger warning sort of thing if I don't have um, iPhones and those sorts of things in the home? Or if I do, am I just sort of sending my children out into a, a, a place where they they're really can, can damage themselves? How would you suggest they, they try to think through these things?
0: yeah th- that is the question of, of the decade and I think some answers are beginning to become clear I don't want to foster any sort of moral panic I don't want people to overreact but I think what we're beginning to see is that when kids when kids spend up to two hours a day on these devices there's not a lot of evidence of harm but these things are so addictive and the programs are designed specifically to keep the eyeballs on the screen mm-hmm. in fact my daughter my daughter when she was seven last year she she called out from the other room, Daddy, can you come take away the iPad? I can't take my eyes off it. She literally needed my help to break the lock it had on her eyeballs. Hmm. So up to two hours a day may not be so bad. And so what what I would recommend, what we recommend in the book Um, is that you limit that. And there are programs, I'm experimenting with one now called Custodio. Um, What you don't want is to be supervising your kid and have the usual tug of war where you come into the room and the kid moves his hands because he was holding a device and he's trying to hide it from you. So you don't want that to happen. Uh, But if you can put on some sort of a program that limits them to two hours a day so that they at least have to choose and they can't just waste hours and hours on some stupid app, that can be helpful. Hmm.
1: Now, do you think there's too much of a focus on uh, success being defined as uh, children able to uh, succeed at, at college. That's one of the things I, I face when I'm talking to teenagers is a great sense of uh, just unrelenting pressure. Uh, is yeah. that an illusion or is that real? No,
0: no, no. That is absolutely true that the pressure has increased. So I went to Yale in the 1980s, and I believe the acceptance rate back then was 15%. And now I just got a mailing from Yale. Now it's 6 or 7%. Uh, things are more competitive, and and the people you're competing against all have 15 extracurricular activities. Yeah. So it is true that the competition has gone up, but there's this really unfortunate uh, feedback loop in which So, many parents now feel they have to push their kids to to, to succeed academically from a very early age. They've got to get them into the right kindergarten or even preschool. And the the, the paradox is that what kids most need to do in the early grades is play. That's Mm -hmm. it. Play, play, play. There is no advantage. To starting reading early, there's no advantage to doing math in kindergarten or even first grade. There should be no homework in kindergarten, first grade, maybe even second grade. If we want to prepare our kids for success in college, the best thing we can do is give them a lot more playtime and a lot less math instruction early on. Now, in middle school, you know, it's very different. But just a few days ago, a major report came out from the American Academy of Pediatrics titled, The Power of Play, a Pediatric Role in Enhancing Development in Young Children. Even the doctors are now saying, stop with the over-education. stop with the overprotection let your kids play
1: hmm. now you know, right now in the culture i've noticed that uh, trigger warning and safe space that those sorts of language has that, that's almost become a joke uh, people will just in conversation say trigger warning i'm, I'm about to say something you know as with mm-hmm. a kind of a smile on their face because it's kind of become something to be ridiculed Often I find that some of the people who are joking the most about trigger warnings and snowflakes are themselves <laughs> the most resistant to ideas that are not theirs and don't even want to be to be around them. But how do we really resolve this when you're talking about things that are going on in college? First of all, is this really uh, a problem on, on most uh, college campuses? And, and if yeah. so, what do we do? That's right. That's, that, that's, a, that's a good question that needs some clarification.
0: And especially, I think, for the audience listening to this show, I, the reassuring message is that of America's 4,500 colleges and universities um, – at uh, the great majority of them, not much of this is happening. If your listeners send their kids to an elite uh, school in the Northeast or the West Coast, it probably is happening. Um, but in the South, uh, in Christian schools, in engineering schools, no. In those places, people mostly joke about about trigger warnings and safe spaces. So it is quite variable. But you, people need to um, uh, to look at the campus material, look at uh, the, the the way that the president talks. They need to talk to students about what happens if someone expresses a dissenting view? What happens if someone challenges uh, the prevailing wisdom? Will they be shamed? Will they be criticized? Um, or is it a pretty open place? And um, I, I gave a talk at, um, at Biola last winter, it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, this, you know, the issues there are very different. It, it, the stuff that you read about happening at places like Yale, um, it's, it's a different set of, of issues there. But social media is making everyone a little crazy. And yeah. so you need to find out, from other students, what's it like? How open are people at this school?
1: What sort of advice would you give for evangelical Christians who are? I mean, obviously, you're not an evangelical Christian, but if you're, if you're just, if you're just trying to advise them on how to live, I mean, so I, I was with a group of evangelical Christian students at a very elite Ivy League uh, Eastern school uh, not long ago who feel beleaguered. Not that they're looking yeah. for for safe spaces, but they feel as though there are all sorts of options that are acceptable to talk about. But talking about their faith in Christ uh, in Orthodox terms is something that is is just immediately moves them to the margins of conversation. and they're they're almost afraid to even to even speak. How should they try to to interact with people who hold different views mm-hmm. without fearing sort of secularizing? Uh, Yeah. But also how to talk in a way that if if not persuasive, at least is able to make a connection with very secular people. Yes.
0: so there's there's long been a tension between the most secular and progressive places uh, and and Christianity um, over issues of evolution and a variety of topics what i've noticed is that in the last several years maybe 5 or 8 years or i guess since the since all the gay marriage bills in the early 2000s um some elements of the left have coalesced around the idea that Christianity is hateful because of its uh, its opposition to gay marriage, uh, because of some lines in the Bible. And this is the issue that, that was so interesting um, that, that Biola and, and other Christian schools, as I've seen, um, have been really wrestling with is that they're not homophobic. They don't dislike gay people. They want to support their gay students. Uh, but they do have certain restrictions on what they can do, what policies they can do, given given their, mm-hmm. um, their, their commitment to living in a scriptural way. So I think everyone needs to understand, the, well, I think the, the specific issue is over uh, accommodation of LGBT issues. And so I think somehow um, portraying that you're wrestling with issues that there are competing demands that life is complicated. Um, The Sermon on the Mount, invocations and words of Jesus are so full of love and acceptance as well. So anything you do that that subverts the idea that you somehow are anti-gay Um, I think is at least, I, I mean, assuming you are, I mean, obviously, I'm saying only, you know, say what is truly in your heart. But, but I think understanding why the other person might have prejudices against you, and then addressing those slowly and indirectly. Um, I think is, is an important strategy, an important way to think about what's happening here. Everybody's morally motivated. Everybody's pursuing what they think of as the good. And the difficulty of our modern life is that we now have such moral incoherence in the public square and such overconfidence because each person is surrounded by people who agree with them and each person is given ammunition every day via social media about how right their side is and how evil the other side is.
1: Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is I think you're you're completely right that people are surrounded by people who uh, agree with them. But also, one of the unique things, I'm, I'm in very different circles that don't interact with one another um, almost ever, and so I will notice the same phenomenon going on. A conservative uh, Christian might see himself as being surrounded by a very hostile culture. Uh, he's a, a beleaguered uh, minority uh, in that culture that's out to to Take him down, and you talk to a a very secular progressive uh, who has the exact same mentality uh, that that Christianity uh-huh. is big and is the oppressor yep. and is uh, so. Exactly. H- how do we move beyond that sense of of perpetual victimhood for everybody <laughs> uh, in American culture? No,
0: that, no, that's right. That's what happens in a in a, um, a polarization cycle. Um, each side is motivated to portray the other side as big and dominating and evil, and our side as weak, we're the underdogs, we're the beleaguered ones. And you know what? Each side can make a good case that that's true. Mm-hmm. Because of social media, they've got plenty of evidence that that's true. Um, what I have found is that... Um, meditating is that the the ancients understood this. The ancients, whether they're uh, uh, Christian or Stoic or Buddhist. um, My my first book was called The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. And it's about the psychological insights that the ancients had. And so I I think whether, you know, I I think obviously the Sermon on the Mount and Buddha's Dhammapada uh, and also Marcus Aurelius, those are three of the richest works of human history in how to live Live in this age. And so, meditating on how people will slander you, people will attack you, mm-hmm. uh, and if you carry yourself with dignity and love, it's in the short run, it's hard to do, but in the long run, People will be inspired by your example. Um, and this is something that I've seen that I, that I do admire in, in, in the Christian students I used to have uh, at UVA is the way they carry themselves. They just carry themselves differently uh, than many of the secular students. Uh, and while that may, you know, some people may mistake what that is, but in the long run, uh, st- um, not, not, not getting dragged into the conflict, staying above it with love in your heart, I think is the best way to live.
1: Hmm. When you look at the campus environment going forward, when I talk to evangelical Christians, many of them have a... I think an overly bleak view uh, of where things are going. When they look at campus ministries that aren't allowed to have religious requirements for their leaders on campuses and those sorts of things, yes, uh, they they assume that this is this is going to keep going in that direction uh, all the way through mm-hmm. to a, a complete marginalization of, of uh, different ideas. Do you think that's the case, or is there a is there a floor here? Yeah. Is there is there a, some some hope of some some better pluralism? Yeah.
0: It, it it could go either way. I think that our national polarization is likely to get worse. I don't see any signs on the horizon yeah. that that's going to be any better in the next five or 10 years. Um, but what I am seeing is that, um, is that two or three years ago when I started writing about this, a lot of people at universities thought... That this was just a few anecdotes. This is not a national problem. Um, but now, um, now I'm seeing the university presidents and deans are all finding that their jobs are almost impossible. Mm-hmm. That conflicts break out over, over somebody says one word that somebody else didn't like and it blows up. Uh, and this happens constantly. So I am finding that, um, the university leaders are, are sick and tired of it. They are ready to change. Um, th- what's happening is not that students and and professors and leaders have suddenly become really illiberal and intolerant and, and, and censorious, uh, most people in universities are what you might call liberal left. That is, they really do believe in openness mm-hmm. and free speech, but there's a small group that you might call the illiberal mm-hmm. left. Um, and again, they're motivated by moral concerns, usually about diversity and inclusion, but they end up acting in ways that have everyone else afraid. And so those people have been given free reign at some schools, not most, but at some schools. I think that's going to change. I think. change. It's been clear where this is going, and I think we will begin to see many more people standing up for academic norms for the importance of viewpoint diversity, which is going to include political diversity and religious diversity. Uh, that's something that we're working on at Heterodox Academy, an, an organization that I co-founded, um, is we just believe that you need actually people who think differently as part of your academic community. And there has to be room for people who think differently. We, we need dissent. We need uh, people to help us overcome any kind of political orthodoxy in order to get our teaching and research done. Mm.
1: You know, one of the things that I've I've noticed is that a, a big problem uh, for religious people, really of all all sorts, right now, is not so much uh, secularization as a kind of cynicism toward institutions, uh, generally, uh, mm. and that's that's really yeah. um, at a at an inflection point right now with the Trump uh, controversies. You know, dividing older and younger evangelicals often, and yeah. then uh, and then looking around at, say, the sexual abuse scandals going on in the Catholic Church and evangelicalism and other, and other places. If you were sort of uh, brought in as consultant uh, to the Catholic Church dealing with the, this this issue and with mm-hmm. others who are, how would you go about it?
0: Yes, what you're pointing to is a problem globally. All over the world, we're seeing declining trust in institutions and while that decline began before social media and the Internet, I think it's accelerated. Um, in part, it's due to the good effect that we actually can find a lot of terrible things that were mm-hmm. happening as, we, as we're seeing now in the Catholic Church. Um, so in a sense, our institutions have always been a mixture of, of virtue and corruption, and now we're seeing a lot more of the corruption. So it's not just Christian institutions or Catholic institutions. It's all over the world in every country. Uh, we have to learn how to live in the age of, of the Internet. I think that this, I hope that this will lead to a major all around the world uh, rising interest in ethical leadership and ethical culture. How do you create an ethical culture? And that is not about finding a few heroes and punishing a few villains. It's about getting systems right. It's about making sure that your reward systems, you're not rewarding people just for performance, for meeting targets. Because when you do that in business, boy, uh, people find a way to meet those targets by hook or by crook. Uh, It means you have to empower people to speak up. They can't be afraid to speak up. And I think that's where the Catholic Church really fell down. Um, So the Catholic Church, I think, had a lot of really bad systems that evolved over time. Uh, and that we're not responsive to uh, – they're not able to catch and punish uh, the, these, the most horrific abusers. I, I think an, att- an attention to systems, knowing now that information will get out and it will often be distorted, but it will get out, we really all have to be squeaky clean and think about the, the systems that we mm. put in
1: place. Uh, finally, what what would you say, uh, Professor Haidt, to the the evangelical Christian who's listening to this, who says, maybe, maybe I'm caught in a Facebook bubble because when I think about uh, very secular people who don't, don't agree with me, they seem crazy. Uh, I just can't understand why mm-hmm. they would why they would think the the way that they think, which means you're not able to have a conversation. How would they be able to take some steps toward understanding people who don't agree with them, or should they just conclude, well, that's just the way the way it is? We all, you know, to use your your metaphor of uh, elephants and, and riders, our, our elephants are all just going in different directions, and there's not much we yeah, can do. Well, yeah. What what sort of tangible steps could they take?
0: So the first thing is to realize that we're all being kind of duped and tricked and manipulated by this unfortunate fact that what we're fed about the other side is not about the average person on the other side it's about the worst possible most extreme most outrageous person on the other side so we have to learn to ignore that and not judge people based on their worst people but based on their best just as christians would not want to be judged by secular folk based on the worst abuses on the christian side which believe me the secular folk are getting all kinds of examples of so, uh, so you can't. You don't want to get caught up in that game. You you have to realize that um, that most people on this side, the vast majority of people on either side, are really truly good people who are who are being affected by their surroundings. Um, second, you, you need to develop some tools of, of empathy and understanding and, and skills and how do you have such conversations. And the two best resources I can recommend are uh, Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People is a classic. I think everyone should read it. They should not be allowed on campus until they do it. And the other thing is this uh, program that my, my group here at NYU is developing called the Open Mind um, uh, program. And so if you go to openmindplatform.org, um, we've created a, a, it's a, it's a five-step program. You can do it on any, on any smartphone mm-hmm. or computer or anything. Um, and it walks you through the basic moral psychology of, of why this happens to us and how, how do you uh, understand people on their side and how do you have a conversation with them. So the, the skills and tools are there. Um, uh, the, the will is there in, many, in, in most Americans. Most Americans realize we're in trouble, and if we keep going this way, our country is in trouble. Uh, so I am hopeful. I do think that Christians have unique moral resources. What we most need in this age uh, is some humility. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we all need to be a lot more humble, recognize that we don't really know what's going on. Our information diet is terrible, mm-hmm. and we've got to be a lot less self-righteous. And I think Christians really can lead
1: the way on that. I said that was last question but I have I have one more I cannot let you go without asking you as someone who's in mean, the coddling of the American mind you're thinking a lot about child rearing and and forming colleges one of the things that historically uh, evangelical Christians did pretty well uh, was Sunday school and uh, cultivating uh, children in the faith churches find that really difficult right now uh, when you're dealing with children who are being tugged back and forth from soccer practice to violin practice to, to, to everything else and the just the amount of time uh, that churches have with uh, with the children in their in their own communities is much is much less than what it would have been when, say, I was a five-year-old in, in Sunday school. How should churches start to rethink that kind of moral education, spiritual education? Should we keep doing the same thing that we're, we're doing? Or is there something happening in terms of the way people learn in this society that ought to cause us to rethink things?
0: Yeah. There's a wonderful book by William Damon, D-A-M-O-N. He's a wonderful um, developmental psychologist. And he, he wrote a book called The Youth Charter, How Communities Can Work Together to Raise Standards for All Our Children. And the the big idea that I took away from that is that kids are really, really good at code switching. That is, they know how to behave in church, they learn that, and then they go out to the playground, and they behave mm-hmm. differently, and they behave differently at home. So kids are really good at that, just as they can learn different languages. And Damon's point is that let's let's accept that that's true. Let's accept that about, about our kids. And then um, if you can get a community to agree on certain norms, um, you know you, you get the track coach and the and the and the secular school teachers and the Sunday school teachers to agree on a few a few principles um, and if and if everybody says that in all those spheres, then the kids are more likely to see, well, this is just the way things are this is not just this is not specific to one area or another now obviously the internet makes that harder because you can 't possibly control everywhere that a kid goes and all the norms that they see. But to the extent that communities can work together, I think one of the biggest problems of our age is moral incoherence. This is something that I think Christians really understand that kids need a moral framework when they're growing up. And I think many secular, uh, many secular. Moral development efforts from the sixties and seventies were based on the idea that oh, we shouldn't impose our values on kids. Kids need to choose them themselves, Mm -hmm. and that just did not work. That was a really bad idea. Kids need some structure. They then can deal with a lot less structure as they get older, but young kids and through middle school, they need they do need a moral framework within which to grow and develop self control and develop virtues. And if they're getting multiple, if they're exposed to multiple different moral worlds. Early on, it makes that harder. Now, eventually, they can think for themselves and and the diversity becomes good and exciting and and challenging and growth-promoting. But I think for young kids and middle school kids, I think it's important to have a common moral
1: framework. Mm. So the idea of very young children being missionaries kind of thrown out into a a whirlwind of, of competing moral ideas really doesn't work very well. It, yes. I mean,
0: it, um, in general, yeah. as a
1: general principle, um, I, I would say that. Professor Jonathan Haidt, he's the author of the, the new book called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas are Setting a Generation Up for Failure, and the author of The Righteous Mind, Why Good People are Divided by Politics and Religion. Thank you so much, Professor Haidt. I've benefited uh, more than I can even tell you uh, from your work over the years, and it's been, a, it's been an honor to talk to you. Well, it's been a
0: joy to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: This is Russell Moore, and you've been listening to Signposts.